Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, They keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. And that's the conclusion of the reading of God's word. Amen? Amen. There's a famous saying that you've likely heard Bad company ruins good morals or good character. Have you heard it? It's actually biblical because Paul quotes it himself in 1 Corinthians 15 while he's teaching the Corinthian church about the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is a certainty. Hope you've been moved by our songs this morning. They've reminded us of it. When poor lisping, stammering tongues give way to a song even from the grave. The resurrection is the proof that God beats death. We will rise with Christ. We'll inherit eternal life forever. And those who have refused to believe and follow Christ will inherit eternal torment in hell. And Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 on those things and how it should give them confidence. And then in it, he makes this statement, quoting the ancients. Bad company ruins good morals and character. And the question I'm asking 
us this morning is, is a person's good morals really ruined by bad company? Does community influence have power over us? To answer that, I wanted to start with what our church believes. Let our statement of faith help us start. In the topic of corruption in our statement of faith, this is what we say. We say that mankind, people, by voluntary transgression, have fallen. By voluntary transgression, humanity fell from that holy and happy state with God. As a result, all people are now sinners, not by external compulsion, but by choice. So at our church, we believe that people are ultimately ruined and corrupted by original sin in them that causes them to choose to sin, to react sinfully to their environment, not by external compulsion, but from what's within. So in its origins, we are sinful rather than what is around us is making us sinful. However, Paul's not wrong. We're right to believe that. Paul's also right to say that bad company ruins good character. He's speaking generally when he quotes the ancients there in 1 Corinthians 15. He's doing it to show a general principle concerning the way community can influence the choices we make. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the first time that you succumbed to peer pressure as a child? I remember one memory from the locker room in seventh grade. My mother had bought me a nice pair of Walmart brand basketball shoes to go and play basketball with the middle school boys. I thought they were great. I loved my shoes. Until about two weeks into the locker room, I realized that I didn't have the right shoes on. Everyone around me let me know. The newest Nike Air Hirachis had came out. That actually, that shoe, the Hirachi, had came out I've studied this this week in the 90s, actually, like before I was even born in 1990. But this was the newest version of it. And man, everybody had it. And I became the source of the laughing stock of my locker room as I was made fun of not having the right shoes, me and a few other boys. I begged my mom and dad to take me to foot action and to get me the right shoe. And they gave in and did. Probably a bad parenting choice. But you know, the locker room shaped me. My community shaped me so much, it affected what I bought, uh, my product consumption, the way I viewed the importance of shoes. Community was able to tell me that. It changed me in a way. It had power over me. That's because we as people are fundamentally corporate. And anyone who chooses to isolate themselves for a long period of time generally has something going wrong or will. So the health of a community really matters. It matters greatly, and it will have a great effect on a person. How do you guarantee a healthy community that will have a positive effect on you? Well, I think this morning's text helps us answer that question. This morning's text shows us three types of community through the reflections of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It shows us first the cost of a community that is birthed from envy. So it shows us the envious community first. Second, it shows us the negative effects of an unbalanced community. It looks at the individual, but it ultimately places unbalance on an individual, and then it has community ramifications, unbalanced community. 
And then thirdly, I think that it gives us a portrait of what I'm going to call the Christ-centered community, a good, healthy community. Let's look at all three together. In verses one through four, we see the first kind of example of community, okay? It's the envious community. Now, before we uncover the issues that are in this envious community and its influence on us, let's get some background. Until this point in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has really spent his time trying to find the meaning in life in his own headspace. It's been very personal, right? It's been his own thoughts on nature and the cyclical nature of this world and how we fit in it. It's been on self-indulgence and how he personally pursues pleasure, on wise living as it pertains to him, on the timeliness of life and even dealing with death, all personal all single man topics. But now he kind of turns to a new topic, the topic of community. But his findings are what we expect, right? They're bleak. Remember, this book prepares uh, us for hope by offering very little of it. And that seems kind of ridiculous. It's paradoxical. But it is what the book does. It prepares us for hope by offering very little hope. We have to work to believe there is bigger and godlier things happening above these pages. What seems godless is actually just an honest dive into the doubt that me and you carry with us so naturally. It's the willingness in these sermons. It's the willingness to sit. And remember that the fear of God is the most important thing, but it gets pushed aside. And so sit with the things that push aside for a minute but there is hope. So as you just heard read a while ago by me, his, his first thoughts on community point out the sad reality that entire groups of people can, been, can be and have been oppressed before. That's what he sees when he thinks about people communally held to such terrible standards of living that they weep and no one comforts them in their weeping. They are powerless. This is a new thought, a new idea, as the preacher returns back to the argument he's trying to make to find meaning in life's meaninglessness. The message uh, translation, though a poor translation, does offer, I think, a helpful way to think about this idea of oppressions mentioned here in verses one. It says, These oppressions are the outrageous violence that takes place on this planet. I think that's a good way to summarize the preacher's observations here. He is painting another idea picture here for me and you. From his vast experience, he has seen much of this in the way that most don't. So he brings up this idea that a lot of times community that should be helpful is actually the opposite. It's oppressive. Oppression. What does it mean? What does he mean by that? Well, look, there is personal oppression that we all know and we've all seen before. Maybe even you've experienced it yourself. An overbearing, abusive father. Maybe a toxic relationship where one partner oppresses the other. A twisted friendship where someone manipulates the other for selfish gain. Numerous other personal examples that we could list. But then there's the level of oppression that we all know, and that is when it becomes systemic, 
You know, for example, not just one spiritually corrupt pastor, but a whole team of them in a religious sense. Maybe a whole sect of Roman Catholic priests that make the news as being corrupt. Or if you step out of the religious world, maybe into criminal world where entire outfits are exposed, where cities are actually owned by majority power of corrupt leaders. Or entire governments that oppress people like modern day North Korea, like 1940s Germany, like Fidel Castro's Cuba, or to all of our pain and misery, modern examples like the rise of the caliphate or the hopes of it in Afghanistan as we see that crisis unfold before our eyes and entire peoples throwing themselves on planes to avoid the oppression. Entire communities targeted for some reason or another by oppressors. This is what the preacher sees. The preacher rightly sees that this is one of the saddest realities about being a human. By the second half of the verse, he laments the serious problem with such totalitarian systems. And there is compassion in verse one. That's why we need to see this community for what it is for a minute. He has compassion. And if you're a reader this morning and listening to this, and you've struggled as someone who can be desensitized to the cries of the oppressed, then this won't not hurt you like it should. You see, Christians and people of God especially are to be people who have ears for those around us that are oppressed. We're to be able to hear the marginalized, the broken, and the beat down. And we do because we know that we are spiritually dead and poverty-stricken sheep ourselves were it not for Christ who has changed us. We're to be marked with the compassions of God. But often, as the preacher's pointing out, we do not have time or ears or understanding of the tears of the oppressed and the fact that they have no one to really comfort them. But God cares. And we would do well to understand in this introduction on the envious community. He starts with the worst before he gives the source. And the worst is true. Proverbs 21.13 says this about what God thinks about how we treat the poor. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I mean, God has spoken. There are so many who are miserable in their oppression. So many consistently struggle with no one to comfort them. And they turn to the only things that they themselves have power over to find comfort. Oftentimes that includes all the personal oppressions we just talked about. Relationships that they can manipulate, maybe substance abuse, maybe other created things that should serve a better purpose in their life, but they use them for self-gratification. The point is this, tears are in fact shed in this world and the wisdom of God is to not overplay it and to not underplay it, but to see it for the reality that it is. And that's the next verse's goal. If you look at verses two and three, he begins to show the dread of this type of community. He thought, a dead person is better than someone who would have to live under such oppression. He actually thinks that a person who was never even born in the first place is the person who should really be envied because that person will avoid the heartbreak of oppression. Now, we may not agree with this extreme thought, but I hope this morning that we can at least respect it. Let's be honest at Redemption Baptist Church as we're here this morning. Me and you, we try to have an idea about 
the lives that people live daily under pain and pressure in abusive nations, under powerful oppressors. But we struggle. We struggle to really understand. But the preacher wants us to see that before we can deal with your own heart, before we can talk about what it means, why entire cities and civilizations can crumble under the power of other men, before we can really ask those questions, we just need to realize that there's a lot of pain in this world. And there's not a lot of people willing to sit with it. There's not a lot of people willing to sit with the poor and help them work through their tears. And so it's just better to hope that a child won't be born into such misery, the preacher says. And that's hard for us to cope with because a lot of times we've been lulled into our own comfort. We've been able to let the news be the news, but then not penetrate our hearts to think about how we, sh we share a space on this terrestrial ball with people that really cry out. Children do go to bed hungry and sick people with no access to common medicine do die every day. And, and there are numerous accounts of people that wake up in oppression constantly. How does it happen? Why do such communities come into existence without others stopping it, without me and you stopping it? How do powerful abusers get into power in the first place? Well, the answer gives, the, the preacher gives an answer. He says it's envy. Look at verse four. So then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Now, let me be clear. This is not the only reason why systemic oppression and brokenness and envy, you know, be, envy is one of countless untold examples of the fall and sin being why this happens. But the preacher zooms in on this, and so we need to. Let's think about envy together. All views of mankind apart from the Christian view will try to strip men down to their base instincts. And when it does so, it does not like what it finds. And this verse strikes at the heart of that, of what man is. Man is an envious creature, envious of everything that benefits anything else besides him. Uh, he is driven to succeed, to survive, and to rule, even at the expense of a fellow creature. That's who mankind is in his envious base sin. But what is base in us that the preacher offers here as an ultimate desire, pushing uh, us to toil and develop our skills, um, is not hidden deep within at all. Envy is uh, bold. It comes forth all the time. And that's what he's trying to show us. People rise the various ladders of their own successes, and as they climb them, they often trample those that are on the ladder with them as they themselves are getting trampled. There's this inward ravenous selfishness that is envy, and it's in all of us. We talk about envy much, um, excuse me, we don't talk about envy much, but it's a serious sin. It has been the collapse of entire nations and empires when you really think about it. I mean, I, I'm teaching uh, the, the Trojan War soon to some students I teach. And, and I'll tell you, as I've studied and gotten ready for that, uh, it's amazing to see that, that the most notorious war in ancient Greece began because of one man's envy of another man's wife. Paris wants Menelaus's wife as he's incited by the Greek gods. 
and it starts the greatest conflict. Tens of thousands of men fall dead on the shores of uh, Ilium because of one man's envy of another. Countless examples would abound. How are ways, church, that envy of neighbor um, gets connected to how you live? That may be too much of a quick jump, but I don't think it is. I think we would be surprised about how much we welcome envy into our daily lives. For envy to be the source of toil and issue here that could reach such heights of oppression, we must realize that it was always happening in the heart's on a lower level. It always will. I think me and you would be surprised at how much we've let envy ruin our own community at times. I mean, just think of corporate America or any big business. It's easy to see these connections in places like it to envy. We want our bosses to notice us, so we cut corners here. Or we maybe fail to pass on that helpful tip to a coworker. So many work beneath difficult bosses that they're getting crushed under the weight of pressure and deadlines and succumbing to the envy of neighbors. But you know, ultimately, we want fame and money and power and our name ahead of others. Envy motivates us in our work. We see this plague in parenting. We get convinced of our good or our bad parenting so often by comparing it to our own upbringing. Or maybe what we deem to be a good failure or a success in someone else's parenting. We compared to it. And we strive and work and toil to raise our kids and give them what they want and what they need. And then someone comes along with a better behaved or a more endowed child. And we scramble again to keep up with the Joneses. And oftentimes envy marks how we raise the next generation. Everyone who has ever committed an affair will talk about the lack of love that their spouse began to show them. They will victimize themselves. He just didn't love me anymore. She would not listen to me or care for my needs, they'll say. But the truth is, is that envy in them won the day. They wanted what they didn't have. They coveted what they did not have. And so they went to sinful measure and extreme to fulfill it. Envy is sneaky. We must test ourselves to see if it's our motives. We must ask ourselves why we are doing what we are doing. Even someone like a preacher faces the base temptation of envy. Am I as good of a preacher and a communicator as the guy down the street is? Do I work in toil because I'm hoping to have a big church and a big name and big power and influence over people? We must ask ourselves at every level to silence the sinister nature of our hearts. Am I envious of others? You see, the preacher is a truth teller. He is saying that he has seen over and over again nations toppled by this understanding. That this is what will come up. Oftentimes we toil and we, we use our skills out of envy. Think about playing the fiddle. Does someone play the fiddle because they want to be the best fiddle player in the world? Are they the best fiddle player in the world? Or are they the best fiddle player in the world because of how much they love to play the fiddle? You know, we're all participants. We're all playing our fiddles. If we play with envy, it can be the fall of our entire system. 
Now, the preacher may not have an answer for the corruption and oppression he sees just yet, but he knows the issue, at least one of them. We must learn in our pursuit of healthy community that envy has no place among God's people. It has no place. Now, we may hear the preacher talk about the vanity that striving to work out of envy of one's neighbor is, and therefore we may rush to the extreme of not working at all. And that would be a problem. And that's where he heads next for our second point. These next Proverbs, if you notice how this chapter is laid out, these now and four and five and six and uh, seven, we, we, we hit, uh, for the rest of the chapter, we hit these proverbial statements. But they're not disjointed. It seems that way. But they're not disconnected. And I want you to understand that these next Proverbs show us the extreme reactions in either direction of the, and the problem with both of them. You see, healthy communities are supposed to be filled with balanced people, but unhealthy communities that can harbor envy, uh, they're actually unbalanced and they challenge the security of the people in it. You know, unbalanced community is a house of fools. And so that's why it goes straight into verse five saying, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You see, one mark of unhealthy community, unbalanced community is it's filled with foolish people that don't want to work. The foolish person doesn't work. In some way or another, he, he, is, he is evaluated life and he sits on his hands. Think about this picture. He sits on his hands, refuses to do anything until all of a sudden another part of his body tells him, I'm hungry. His belly rumbles. And what does he have? Nothing. He has what his hands have produced. Nothing. So he turns on him and he consumes his own flesh. One assumption that the preacher makes in this entire passage today is that people must work to even have community. Uh, it may seem like an, an adequate solution, you know, considering the various traps that envy has laid in the workplace or in living, you know, or doing life uh, to just not work at all. But that would be counterintuitive to God's good design. Remember what I just told you about Ecclesiastes. There's, there's so much that the preacher is banking on the people of Israel knowing. And one of those things is, is that God has created them to work and to keep. They are to be a people of work. And so laid behind this proverb is the wisdom that we were created by God to cultivate and to work the earth and to fill it. And that it's a good thing given by God before the fall into sin to work and to keep this world. Though this world now is full of options to envy one's neighbor and suffer in working, there is much to be redeemed by God in our work. So we must not give it up. God is clear about this. He's clear about it elsewhere in scripture. Proverbs 10 says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of a diligent, the diligent man makes him rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent, wise son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. The Bible is clear. We must Work. It's a part of what God has made us in his image to do. And so the preacher has this assumption in the background as he calls out laziness. You're unbalanced in your community if you're lazy. People don't think that, but it's just true. You know that when you wait in a drive-thru for some order and it takes five times longer than it did a week ago, your first thought is someone in there is not doing their job. And oftentimes it's because somebody in there is being lazy. 
The New Testament understands the same truth about work being vital to community. When the Apostle Paul writes to a community of believers in Thessalonica, he speaks to them frankly about this devastating unbalance that the the preacher is trying to show um, in an unbalanced community uh, about not working. And Paul writes, and I want you to turn there. Um, This is one passage I do want you to see in 2 Thessalonians. So go to 2 Thessalonians 3. And while you're turning there, the context, remember, this is, this, is not, uh, this is not Paul writing to the tent makers of the city. Uh, this is not Paul writing to the local food or market company giving them advice, okay? This is him writing to the entire church. All people in the church in Thessalonica need to be warned of the unbalanced community such laziness can produce. And so he writes in chapter 3, Verses six through 10, he says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, that sounds just like Ecclesiastes. The fool folds his hands and then he eats his own flesh. We must work and we should do so because it is a good gift from God and just like him, it is to be enjoyed. Let me ask you this. Have you considered your work a joy this week? Do you see the daily contribution you make to the community around you as valuable? To be unbalanced in our view of the work we do can can have a very negative effect on us in community. A mother who tends her household's needs out of a heart of laziness or apathy will run the risk of losing the home as a place of nourishment for children and spouse. An employee who halfway does the task, folds his hands and slips by doing the bare minimum will never receive commendation and will always be putting more stress on others in the employment. A Christian who is lazy in his work is robbing the world around him from the sacrificial service that Christ has shown them and will give account to God for it. You see, maybe the biggest work me and you have as Christians that we cannot fold our hands in is cultivating gospel centrality in our lives. Cultivation of the gospel message is one's uh, life as a Christian, as a witness to others, and nothing challenges it more than laziness. I mean, think about this. You know the good news that you should share with a neighbor, with a coworker, with a friend, with a stranger that you meet, but you're often too lazy to open your mouth and do so. It's a shame and a quick way to devour oneself and lose community. But before we 
get too heavy on that end of the balance, the preacher goes the other way in verse six. In verse six, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So tipping the scale the other way is no better either. Saint, hear me in this. You can bring real damage to your community life as well by being too busy, by seeking to do too much. The other extreme here is given. Two hands full of toil. It's like chasing the wind. Rather than have uh, an empty hand and one that's full of quietness. You see, the goal is to have one hand full of well-meaning work that allows you to live peaceably and quietly on the earth. Again, Paul to the Thessalonians is so helpful here in the New Testament. The Thessalonians must have been some worked up folks because they get, they get, they get advice in both directions. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them and he says in verse 10, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now that's a working definition from God about what a handful of quietness really is. That sounds like a handful of quietness to me. When is the last time, Christian, that you thought of your goal as aspiring to live quietly, uh, minding your own affairs and working with your hands? I mean, an hour no, everyone else's business, uh, you know, social media crazed existence, we really stink at this. And it's devastating to our communities. I mean, just think about how unbalanced this is. It's a very unbalanced thing for someone to be struggling immensely with things like image, things like family and trying to hold their family together, things like finances and how there's always more months than money. How unbalanced is it for that person who's in that place that week to then have post a highly filtered, fabricated picture of their smiling family at an expensive vacation destination a week later? That is spiritual insanity. Yet sadly, that's how many people live. Many people labor under the toil of two hands full of 24-7, all I can do is work, 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 and get, and get, and get, and they pass up the handful of quietness. We need the quietness of a meek and godly life. Jesus said it best in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If Ecclesiastes is a study about how to get wisdom under the sun, how amazing is it that Jesus says that those who are meek, those who demonstrate humility, those who pursue a handful of quietness, not two hands out of everything they can get and not folded hands of laziness, but those who try to live a balanced life in him, they're the ones who inherit everything under the sun. They get it rightly. You see, under the sun, those who really strive in a balanced way are those who forsake the pride of busyness and they also forsake the shame of laziness and instead embrace this meekness of living for Christ in community. Now, unfortunately, the preacher takes a turn next to explain that those who live uh, such unbalanced community lives, that they actually run the risk of losing 
meaningful community entirely. Look at the next two verses in verses seven and eight. They spell out the disaster that it is to be alone. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has, uh, who has no one, they have no other, either a son or a brother. And yet in that there's no end to their toil. His eyes are never satisfied with the riches he has. He never stops to ask himself about pleasure. He, you know, he says this is also vanity and an unhappy business. Lacking balance in either direction, the Proverbs just before this uh, describe, leads someone to a place where this is their fate, loneliness in their toil, or they're not toiling at all. I mean, what good is working so hard that you never enjoy yourself? That's what the preacher's asking. Or if you have no one to spend time with when you reach the goal you've set. Now, the truth is it's, it's not good at all. But loneliness, it, it, loneliness may sovereignly be given to someone. There's times where somebody has no sibling. They have no spouse. They have no children, as it's mentioned here. And it may be that that, that was the sovereign will of God for their life. But what isn't is what the preacher says most who are in that place will default to. <clears throat> most people in this example of being alone, <clears throat> excuse me, most people who are in this alone, who seek entirely to work <clears throat> and to toil for their own success are doing it out of a lack of satisfaction. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says that they'll pursue riches, but there's no purpose in riches. The scriptures warn often about the riches of this life being like a fattening agent. Riches make us comfortable when we shouldn't be. They take, uh, they're taking taking us off our God-honoring mission, that riches lead us toward bribes and shadiness, temptations to do whatever it takes to maintain a lifestyle, or taking shortcuts where we shouldn't, neglecting the basic faithful discipline that we should have, not learning to want or lose things. Jesus himself said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In this instance, the riches are really just symptomatic for this man of the real issue. Unhappy loneliness is the real vanity in this person's life. And just like the Lord said of Adam, he says of them, it's not good. It's not good. It's unhappy business, he concludes. And, and honestly, that, that is the real summary of both the victim of envious community and unbalanced community. They're just unhappy. Consider your life. Consider the life of those around you. Are you happy? Do you float in and out of feeling like you contribute to your society in meaningful ways and then maybe oscillate to other feelings of worthlessness? Are you the type of believer today who, who can sing, my worth is not in what I own? But if we really strip away your television and your entertainment and your car and your home and your school and your supplies, and we put you before God. Are you satisfied with him and his people? Is that enough? Ask yourself these things. Whether it's entire nations that are writhing under the oppressive evil of autocrats, or it's in the, in the community of envy, or if it's the personal struggles of an unbalanced life in community, we need a fix. We need the type of community that's mentioned next in conclusion. 
Look at verses 9 through 12. I won't read them again. But they're a wonderful expose of principled power in community. I've called it the Christ-centered community. Now, I freely admit that this is not allegorical, and we shouldn't allegorize it. That means, what that means is, is that we shouldn't do what church fathers like Ambrose have done. Ambrose saw Christ as the figure who uh, picks up a fellow who has fallen. He saw Christ as the warm friend whose body heat helps warm you in the cold. It's too far. We shouldn't do that with the text. We shouldn't do what Jerome did. Jerome went so far as to believe that the threefold cord that's mentioned in this, uh, in this understanding of community is allegorical for the Trinity, representing God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But hear me, we don't need to allegorize the text to force God and Christ into it. Instead, me and you this morning, we just need to seek to understand the heart of God toward community here and the value the preacher sees in being vulnerable with one another. You see, there is a willingness throughout this picture of healthy community that points us to something very Christ-like. It points us to humility. It points us to humility. Look in verse nine. Take each verse. Verse nine explains to us that there is a reward for both parties when they strive together in unison. In other words, when they put to death envy as a driving force for their toiling and alongside each other, they see each other's flourishing as the goal, then there's this benefit, this this whole kind of selfless love, a Christ-like kind of love that brings reward. They don't work for the reward in verse nine. The reward comes from their work. You know what this sounds like to me? It sounds like the new believers in Acts 2. After preaching a sermon and baptizing 3,000 people who've repented and believed the gospel, (coughs) Peter and the apostles and the church gather together. And it says that all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verses 44 and 45 in Acts 2. That's an outworking of verse 9 here. They had a reward together in Christ because they were willing to pursue one another over their own needs. They weren't envious of their neighbor. Laziness wasn't even on the table, nor was overextension. If anything, in Acts, the example unfolds and the people who prove to be wanting two hands of toil, Ananias and Sapphira, who want the most out of the community, who want to deceive the Holy Spirit and lie to their fellow man and stand on on the power of, look at me, I have given all of my lands when they really hold back some from themselves. The Holy Spirit speaks to them and through Peter says, you've lied to God. Who are you kidding? And God strikes them dead, both of them. Because they were pursuing out of envy and they were unbalanced in their want for this world, but not the believers. The believers, they understood what verse nine is saying. Two is better than one. Why? There's a good reward for everybody. I mean, this is just a beautiful principle. You should stick it in the middle of your heart. It's a gospel principle. Jesus only, always, every single time, put others' needs before his own. Consistently. 
Take verse 10, for example. You know, there's a willingness in the one who falls in verse 10 to tell the one who can help him that he's fallen. There's also another willingness in the one who helps picking up the person to look out for his brother enough to know that he will fall. And when he does, he's there. This is the type of principle philosophy that should mark your life in a Christ-centered community. We should be willing to obey the word when it tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. You see, the Christ-centered community is one that understands they're trippy. They fall easily. Like they could be, in a moment, I could fall and lose everything. And so it makes me tread carefully and I dare not tread alone. Walk with me. Because when I fall and stumble, you will help me to pick me up. And Christ did this. Christ walked ever so carefully and patiently with foolish, fumbling disciples. Bearing one another's burdens. We fulfill the law of Christ, Paul was saying. Take verse 11 in our text. Take it as an example. Okay, verse 11 is given as an example of lying in the cold together to keep each other warm with body heat. Now, if we understand this figuratively, we realize the great willingness that these type of people have to trust one another with their lives, okay? If the frigid realities of sin in our lives require the warmth of another to help us, we must realize that we are venturing all the time in an icy world. And our hearts are prone to go cold and frozen. This is who we are. You know, there's a nomadic community that receives this. I'm sure some of them have experienced personally what it was like to travel a long way without the amenities that you and I have and camp for the night near a fire. And as it waned and left them, they then only had each other. And so they got closer and actually were warmed. Now that can't hit me and you like that, but I think figuratively it can. Because if you don't know the power of God that there is in verses like James 5, 16, that says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed if you don't know that that healing is like a warm fire or like pulling a brother or a sister who needs a hug close to help them feel and understand that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, your community's flawed. Verse 11 shows us that there is an intimacy among a Christian people, that they are aware of how cold they will be if they venture away from the center of this thing. And they want to stay close together. They follow their greatest example, Jesus. Or finally, in verse 12, verse 12 shows the power of Christian community that is at war together. If we're not huddling together for warmth because sin has left us so cold, uh, we will be left alone in the fight against sin. Alone in the fight that this life is with sin, you will fall. You will fall greatly. Sin is crouching at the door for us daily, like it was for Cain. Its desire is for us, but we must overcome it. 
Our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He is seeking someone to devour, and he loves the one who travels alone. That's an easy target. But we can employ the power of community in our lives by warring together, pulling together like this three-strand cord that's spoken of. This is the way that those who are in Christ live in community. But how does that community come into existence? Does it happen on its own? Does it happen through the efforts of its members? I tell you today, no. We must see beyond the call of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. You see, in this text, he only shows us the problems and not the solution. You see, you cannot have this type of Christ-centered community without Christ in the center. I've alluded to that, but let me make it clear. You must have the gospel message. This passage points out what we need to have this type of thriving community. It points us to humility. And true humility is something that you and I don't have in our own bosom. It's foreign to us. What's natural to me and you is to fold our hands and eat our flesh. What's natural to you and I is to run rampant in this life and ignore the bigger picture of what's happening, actually happening in our hearts and happening in eternity. It's really easy for us to oppress other people. The natural envy of our neighbor is what lives in us. But true humility, true humility doesn't live in you and me. It's placed there by God. It's placed there by God. And in Philippians 2, we learn that the gospel, the good news that is for us, is that humility came below the heavens under the sun and was humiliated for us. Listen to the way Paul says it. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in other words, if you'll have it this morning, the gospel is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the ultimate community, he was in the form of God. He was in the perfect community of the Godhead, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father through the Spirit. But he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking a form, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus died in obedience to his father for sinners, casting himself out of community so you could cast your burdens on him. And just as Jesus rose, defeating death, and returned to the Father, extending the invitation to all who believe to enter into that community with him. Had this not happened, and if you and I are living in sin, not trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, as we're going to sing, then you are on a hell-bound race straight into envious, oppressive-driven community that never ends for all of eternity. You want to know what hell's like? In hell, people fold their hands and devour their flesh forever. In hell, people run so hard in so many directions that every time they run into another person, they have to keep running away from them. That's what hell's like. Hell, you're never known, yet always known, yet never known, and never known, and never known, never truly known. Hell is being oppressed and oppressing others. And the author of Ecclesiastes paints a, a, a horribly clear picture of hell. 
But God showed up in Christ and he said that you can have access, that at the point of death of Jesus, even death on the cross, the humility that we need was transformed into humiliation for him. And then we receive his humility so that we can humbly walk before our God. We can believe that the work that he starts will come to a completion by trusting that it has happened, that Christ is enough, and putting Christ in the center of our communities, it is the fastest way to healthy living. It is what every local church must fight for. We should embody verses like 9 through 12, but we only can do so with Christ. So how are we doing? Together, we had no hope that God would own us, rebels, to his will. And if he had not loved us first, We would refuse him still. But friend, don't refuse him this morning. Brother and sister, if you don't know the saving love of Christ, repent and believe the gospel today. If you're struggling in our church to believe this community is good for you and healthy, then press in and fight for the love of the saints. Don't refuse communion this morning. Don't refuse the Lord. Be willing to humble yourself before God. In doing so, you'll be like this king. You'll be aware of the poverty around you. You you will no longer uh, ignore advice. You'll take advice. And before you know it, you'll, you'll lead people. You'll lead a host of people. Now, they may forget you in the next generation, but that's kind of part of the plan when it comes to the gospel. I mean, the plan is that I live so that Christ may live through me. And I die to Christ so that Christ may live. And and if they forget who I am, may they never forget who Christ is. And this is the hope of the nations. Christ has revealed himself in this unhappy, vain business that you and I call living. Christ has revealed himself and Christ is enough. And so together, we're gonna respond in song and we're gonna respond with communion, but don't refuse it. Don't refuse the hope you have in in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hope, this living hope, this true hope. God, thank you that sometimes, God, the worst news for us of who we are as sinners, God, and our laziness, of, of how we've oppressed or been oppressed, Father, and not dealt with it well, Father, so many of the things that are lies and ugly about our lives, you take and you transform them, and you make beautiful things, and then you call us into them. You call us into this struggle of this life, and you say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So God, here we are listening, and we want to inherit the earth. We don't want to die and live unhappy, vain lives. God, we want to live for you. And so God, make us humble, or make us a humble people. Help us to not refuse you today. Lord, help us to respond in hope. And God, in that hope, help us to go forth in it. Lord, help us to be a people who preach to the untold millions who don't know you now. God, help us to do that in our own way and to do it faithfully. Lord, we love you and we pray that you will help our lives to be more than striving after win. And so God, make yourself known among us. Make yourself known again and help us to see and hear and to do. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.